You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Our opening prayer is from the Gospel of John. Then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on do not sin anymore. Greetings and welcome to this talk. It is about the woman caught in adultery, which is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We're going to take a look at this, and you might have uh, been intrigued by the title of the talk, The Woman Caught in Adultery, or Was She? And so we want to discuss a little bit of that. This passage is used in the lectionary. It's found as the Gospel reading in year C of the lectionary for the fifth Sunday of Lent. And in other years, it's the Gospel for the Monday of the fifth week of Lent. When it's used in cycle C for Sunday, then a different Gospel, of course, is used for Monday, so it's not proclaimed twice. It comes before Holy Week. And it is a tremendous example of the mercy of Jesus, which we celebrate on Divine Mercy Sunday, the Sunday after Easter. It's a dramatic story. It seems very straightforward, yet there are many questions raised about it. Some commentators say that it doesn't even belong here, in this gospel or in this part of the gospel. And some commentaries don't even treat of it. As a matter of fact, it was a group of uh, colleagues of mine, friends and some students of mine, who noticed that in some commentaries it wasn't found, and they had to preach on it, and they had some difficulty finding background to be able to work up a homily for it, and asked me about it. And so I put together a few notes for them, And it led me to decide to make it the topic for one of the talks in this series as well. There are other questions raised about what is happening here as well. Of course, the most famous one is the question about what was it that Jesus was writing? And there are other questions too. So we're going to take a look at this. Now, right off, I must say that There are no definitive answers that are possible to these questions. Yet, pondering the questions can give us an awful lot of material for meditation, for our own personal reflection and prayer. I'll present both sides of some of the questions and the disputed points, and I will also give you my own choice where I come down on either side of a question but I leave it up to you. The questions remain open. This side of heaven, we're not going to find definitive answers for them. And there's no need to, really, because there is no doctrinal issue that is raised by any of the difficulties with this passage. And so, there's no reason to have only one position. The first question, foremost of all, is, does it fit at all? And you might ask, well, why ask that question? And it's true. 
I would certainly say that it does fit, simply because it is part of the canonical gospel as we have it, and it finds its way into the lectionary as well. So the church has said, this is a part of John's gospel. So that question should not really pose any difficulties for us. But some scholars will say that it belongs maybe someplace else. Some even have thought that it belongs in Luke's gospel more than it does in John's gospel. But the fact that it is part of John's gospel as we have received it in the church answers that question definitively. But other questions are open to discussion. Now, why ask, though, about it being in the gospel itself? It might be uh, a bit of news to some that we don't have any original manuscripts of any of the books of the Bible, any of them. And so let me take a little digression first. There's no original monograph by the human authors of any book of the Bible. What we have, what we have received as the text of the Bible comes from copies. And copies that may be some years, even centuries, after the originals were composed. They are accurate copies. And they are removed, though, from the originals. Now, this does not in any way affect the inspiration of the Bible. We're not questioning that or disputing that at all. As a matter of fact, this particular episode, this part of John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, are not found in the earliest manuscripts that we have of the biblical text. And this, in itself, will raise questions. So this story is not in the earliest manuscripts. However, St. Ambrose and St. Augustine and St. Jerome do have it in their writings. It is in the Vulgate, which is Jerome's work. And again, it is received by the Church and considered part of the canonical gospel. But we don't have early copies of it, early attestation, early evidence of it. That doesn't cause a huge difficulty, but it does raise some issues for it. Now, another digression, if you will, allow me. In the Gospel of John, there is a motif, a theme, a subtext about the growing opposition to Jesus. You can't see this too easily when you just hear or read a single passage, especially if it might be at the Gospel during Mass. But if you take a look at the Gospel as a whole, you can start to see some of these themes, these motifs being woven within the body of the Gospel itself. And this growing opposition is one of these. A particular passage taken out of context won't present itself in this way for us. But looking at the larger span of the Gospel, you can see it. So, as we work our way through the Gospel of John, we find that at first people start to wonder about Jesus. Then, especially the scribes and the Pharisees 
and their followers will start to question him. Then they'll start to debate him, and then they will become more argumentative, and these arguments will become more and more acrimonious, and this will lead to finally a plot on the part of the Pharisees, the scribes, and other Jewish authorities to kill Jesus, and then Lazarus as well, after Jesus raises his friend. So there's a crescendo, like a crescendo in music. It starts to build. You can see it in other places throughout the gospel. Chapter 6, for instance, in the Bread of Life Discourse, even some of Jesus' own disciples leave him. They say that this talk that he has about the Eucharist, and we know he's preparing them for the great gift of the Eucharist. He's talking about giving them his body and blood to eat and to drink. And they say, this is a hard saying. We, we can't accept this. And of course, Jesus is uncompromising. He simply turns to his other disciples and say, says to them, do you too want to leave? And of course, Peter answers and says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So this is, a, again, a motif, a, a theme that John will use. It adds a narrative drive to the gospel. The plot thickens, if you will. But of course, in the end, Jesus triumphs over all his enemies and over Satan himself. He will always win the arguments, and at the end, he, he will rise from the dead and will conquer Satan definitively. So this is a theme that John has running through. This is important for our own particular passage that we're looking at here, the woman caught in adultery, because it fits in very much with John's theme of this, and I'll show this more as we get into the passage itself. We keep these things in mind. So the story certainly goes with the flow of John's showing us the buildup of opposition. So it does fit into the gospel for several reasons. It is in the manuscripts, especially very important ones. It is very characteristic of the writing of John. And it is also an example of the teaching of Jesus found elsewhere in John's Gospel. In chapter 8, verse 15, just shortly after this passage, Jesus says, You judge by appearances, but I do not judge anyone. And that's exactly what he has done. He has not judged this woman caught in adultery. Also, too, in the same chapter 8, a little further on, in verse 46, Jesus says, Can any of you charge me with sin? If I am telling the truth, why do you not believe me? And again, he is telling the truth. And he is not judging this poor woman. And we'll see some reasons, perhaps, why not. So, these verses... In chapter 8, verse 15 and 46, also support the argument that this passage, this story in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, 
fits into the gospel in this place. But there are still questions that can be raised. And I'll deal with those as we work our way through the story. Let's take a look at it in its entirety. Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives, and then in verse 2, John tells us, But early in the morning he arrived again in the temple area, and all the people started coming to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and made her stand in the middle. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and began to write on the ground with his finger. But when they continued asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he bent down and wrote on the ground. And in response they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. So he was left alone with the woman before him. Then Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replied, No one, sir. Then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin any more. Okay, a very dramatic story, and again, as I said, seems very straightforward, but yet it raises these questions for it. First, we're going to take a look at the structure of the story. And it is in a form that is seen often in the Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it is in a form of what is called a chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M. And if you'll bear with me, I'll go into another digression to explain a chiasm before we actually do get to the verses of the chapter. The word chiasm comes from the Greek letter Chi, C-H-I, is transliterated uh, usually as just an X, all right? And that's what the structure looks like when you graph it out. So please bear with me. I'll try to explain this uh, as easily, as quickly as possible. It's really very hard without having visual aids to do it just audibly over a recording like this without being able to have something to actually show you. If I had uh, some kind of graphics that I could put up or include with the talk or something, or if we had uh, some kind of board on the wall or some poster, that would be a lot easier. So please bear with me. A chiasm shows a certain parallelism. Now, for the simplest way, a parallelism usually has four parts to it. Usually in four lines or maybe just a couple of lines. And you can label the parts, the words in the line, the main words. And they're usually done, again, I'm going to use just the simplest 
form of a of this parallelism, this chiasm, and that would be four parts, whether they be four words, four lines, whatever they might be, and they are depicted in letters, a capital A and a capital B, a lowercase small a and a lowercase small b. That's how they diagram out. So they would look like capital A, capital B, small b, small a. Let me show you a clear example. This comes from Matthew's Gospel in the 23rd chapter, verse 12. All throughout this talk, I'm using the New American Bible as my translation for this. So if you're following along uh, in, with your own Bible or in whatever you're reading, and that this is from the New American Bible. And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, we find, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Exalts, humbled. Humbled, humbles, exalted. A-B-B-A. Another example is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Capital A, Sabbath. Capital B, man. Small b, man. Small a, Sabbath. So if you were to graph them out, in a sense, to write them out in a diagram, sort of like the old diagramming of sentences that used to be done long ago. Don't know if it's still done today. It's very useful, though, to diagram it out. You would have one line on top of the other. So in the upper left, you'd have capital A, in the upper right, capital B. In the lower left, small case B, in the lower right, small case A. For that. Okay, <clears throat> so keeping that in mind, if you connect them together, it makes an X, A to A and B to B, and hence the letter X, the chi of the Greek, the chiasm. So again, you've got exalts, humbled, humbles, exalted. Sabbath man, man Sabbath. All right. Now these chiasms can be much, much longer. The story of the flood is a huge one. The entire story of the flood makes this kind of a parallelism between the two parts around the center. Now, sometimes in the center there will be a single line that has no corresponding part. And that would diagram out as capital A, capital B, capital C, small b, small a. The point of a chiasm is to emphasize whatever is in the center. If it's the two lines or two words in the center, or if it's just one by itself with the others surrounding it. It's done as a way to emphasize a certain point. And also, too, it is used to be able to help one to remember the parts of the story and especially in an oral-based culture. This is very, very useful. And so there's a number of reasons why it will be done, especially if it's a longer one, to get all the parts and pieces into the story and to remember all of them. So you've got something that parallels after the center part to make sure that you get everything in and that there is a balance between the parts of the story 
centered around whatever the main point of the story is. And we'll see that for our story a little later on. Please bear with me. This is done throughout the Bible, as I said, both in the Old and in the New Testament. It's also seen in secular literature, although not as much, and certainly not as much in modern literature. But we can look to Benjamin Franklin for an example, for instance. One of his little words of wisdom, lines of wisdom, his aphorisms goes, He who fails to prepare, prepares to fail. Capital A, fails. Capital B, prepare. Small b, prepares. Small a, fail. He who fails to prepare, prepares to fail. It's easy to remember. It makes a point. And it stresses the idea of preparation, the center part, capital B and small b. That's how a chiasm works. And of course, it can be wider than just the words or the lines. And that's what we have here in this story about the woman caught in adultery. It's much wider than just a couple of lines. The whole story is in the form of this chiasm structure. And so what is it, finally? Okay, capital A is verse 3. A woman is brought to Jesus and she is accused. The next part, capital B, is verses 3 to 6. The first part of this, again. The scribes and the Pharisees confront Jesus. They challenge him. The next part is the small letter, the lowercase b, and that's verses 7 to 9. Jesus confronts the scribes and Pharisees in turn, and he challenges them. So you have a reversal. He turns the tables on them. And then finally, to complete the chiasm, lowercase letter a, that's verse 10. Jesus and the woman... And this now is the time when she is acquitted. In the center then, capital B and small b, there is no single line, a C part, just the capital B and small b. The center is the confrontation. And so this is very characteristic of John, as I mentioned. The growing opposition. This is the point. This is the interest that John has in this story. This is the point he's trying to get. It shows this growing opposition, again, from just questioning Jesus, wondering about him, starting to debate him, starting to argue with him, and it will build and build to the plot to kill him. We're here at chapter 8, and the opposition has grown, and it is still growing. And so they're challenging him. And John makes that very clear. And we'll see that when we start to go through it line by line. So let's do that now. Let's look more closely. And as well, let's keep in mind now another story, one that is eerily very similar, and it comes from the Old Testament. It is the story of Susanna from the book of Daniel. It's in chapter 13 of Daniel. And interestingly, this story will be used for the first reading uh, on the Monday of the fifth week of Lent. So these episodes are grouped around each other, interestingly, 
And that doesn't happen just by coincidence, that this reading will be part of the next day for it. Okay, so now, keeping in mind Susanna, we'll pick up the story that John has about this nameless woman who is brought before Jesus. She is a pretext, just simply something for the scribes and Pharisees to use to challenge Jesus. So we get the setting from John, starting in verse 2 of chapter 8. Early in the morning he arrived again in the temple area. He had been at the Mount of Olives from, uh, from verse 1, which is part of this. And now the story itself He's in the temple area, and all the people started coming to him, and he sat down and taught them. Some scribes and Pharisees come up. In verse 3, we read, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and made her stand in the middle. So they interrupt Jesus while he is teaching. He has all these people around him, and they come in. They sort of barge in, in a way, but that's what they want to do. In chapter 4, or sorry, in verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? She's taken in the act, at least according to them. And so this is very reminiscent of the story in Daniel of Susanna with the two corrupt elders. But where is her partner in crime? He's not there. He's not taken either. There's no interest in him. Yet, in the law, which they have quoted, he would be subject to the same punishment as her. This leads many commentators to say that he is not taken or brought before Jesus because there was no partner. Just as with Susanna, she was falsely accused by the two evil elders. There was no crime committed. The scribes and Pharisees made it up, again as a pretext to try to trap Jesus. We don't know this definitely. But it's not outside the realm of possibility. Especially when the person with whom she committed this adultery would be subject to the same penalty. Why wasn't he taken as well? A few commentators have gone even further and have said that the whole incident was contrived by the woman's husband since there was no partner there. They look upon this and conclude that the husband of the woman made it up as a way to get rid of her. Now, there's no real evidence for this either. It is possible, but it's a bit of a stretch. There's simply no evidence, and it seems to go, I would think, too far. Her husband is never mentioned at all. He is not the one who brings her up on these charges. It's the scribes and Pharisees who bring her to Jesus. 
We just don't know anything about the husband, as there is nothing about the partner, who seems to be more probable if there was a partner there, and it seems there wasn't. That's the more plausible explanation. And again, the scribes and Pharisees are not really interested in the woman. They want to humiliate her, but more, they want to trap Jesus. She's just the way to get to Jesus. And John makes this very clear in verse 6. They said this to test him, so that they could have some charge to bring against him. John makes it clear it's a trap. So maybe the charge itself is contrived as well. We don't know, but it's possible that's what's happening here. There is no accused partner present, just like in the Susanna story. There is no partner in the Susanna story because there was none. Maybe there's not one here as well. Again, we don't know for sure, but it does stand to reason. And they're not at all interested in justice. They're not at all concerned about this woman. They want to create a spectacle. So they barge in on Jesus while he's teaching in front of everybody. They put this woman there to humiliate her. And they bring this charge. And they do it to see what Jesus is going to do. And of course, they're waiting to see what is the answer going to be. Is Jesus going to say that she should be punished? Or is he going to show mercy? Either way, they figure they've got it. If he says, yes, condemn her, that's what the law says, does he expect that they are actually going to stone her? And is he going to agree to that? On the other hand, if he shows her mercy, then, well, what about the law? Don't you uphold the law? They figure they can get him either way. Of course, they've tried other ways as well, and it's not going to work. We know that. Now, to the very famous part. What is he writing? Okay. He bent down and began to write on the ground, with his finger in verse 6. We'll never know this side of the parousia. Most homilists will say he's writing the sins of the scribes and Pharisees. That is the most popular interpretation of this. But many commentators see another possibility. They say that he's not writing anything in particular. He's just doodling. Why? Well, because Jesus knew it was a trap, as John has made very clear to us. Jesus knew. And he wants nothing to do with that. He is not going to be pulled into this. And so, basically, by just doodling, he's showing an indifference to their imposition. They're making a scene. He sees through the plot, and he doesn't want to get involved at all. He is, in a sense, 
very graphically turning his back on their protestations. He doesn't want to be drawn in, and he is not going to take sides as they want him to. He knows their true motives, and so in a sense he tries to just ignore them. He is indifferent to the Pharisees, but not to their sin. But in verse 7, they, co- they continue, they persist. But when they continued asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8, again he bent down and wrote on the ground. And verse 9, and in response, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. So he was left alone with the woman before him. They persist. And so he writes again. My own idea is sort of a joining of the two opinions. Because there are two separate incidents where he writes. The first time, he's doodling. I would agree with those who say that. The second time, that's where I think he's writing the sins of the accusers. It's a solution that allows for both opinions. To those who say that say he's only doodling, and those who say he's writing the sins. Okay, so this really allows for both. The first time, it's nothing of consequence that he's writing there, and he's turned his back on them. He's ignoring them. But the second time, he's writing the sins of the accusers. And so Jesus ignores them at first because he knows what they are about. But when they persist. Then he answers them, but he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't do what they want. He masterfully turns the tables on them. He always evades their traps. He's not drawn into useless debates and arguments. And so it's so typically Joannine. Jesus gets the better of them. John will do this in his gospel several times. And every time Jesus wins. And so it happens here again. Jesus responds to her personally. She is no mere object to him, as she was to her accusers. So all of this helps to make it fit into the gospel of John. And Jesus also asks Who's going to be the first to cast the stone? Traditionally, the eyewitnesses were the first ones who were expected to throw the first stones. That was traditional. But where are the eyewitnesses? Why aren't they there? Maybe because there were none. And the scribes and Pharisees don't start it. In verse 10, Jesus then straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she replied, No one, sir. Then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. He tells her not to sin. He has told others that as well. For instance, the man at the pool that he cured. But there's a telling point. Jesus doesn't say 
not to do this sin. He just says, don't sin in general, you could say. So maybe after all, she is innocent, as was Susanna. Again, we don't know and we never will know. He simply says, do not sin. And he has said that before for those who encounter him. The man at the pool, also the same situation is there for the man born blind. They wonder, is it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus denies both. He does not connect the sin with the blind man's condition. The adultery charge is only on the word of those who accuse her. There is no specific reference by Jesus to her committing adultery or not committing it again. Just simply says, don't sin, as he has told many others as well. And so Jesus saw through it all. For John, it is a clear example of the growing animosity to Jesus. It is also an example of the wisdom of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus. So it is very possible this woman was innocent, and Jesus knew that, and he knew what was going on in the hearts and minds of her accusers, and he's not going to be drawn into it, He's not going to take sides. He's not going to say that, well, if she did commit adultery, then this or that. He just simply ignores them, except possibly for writing their sins, which shames them instead of the poor woman, especially since those whom he had been teaching are all around and watching this. It's very interesting if you can imagine what this scene must look like and what the possibilities are. And so it's a powerful story. And there are lessons for us. It is, of course, a lesson to avoid rash judgment and also false judgment, of course. It also tells us not to enjoy another's misfortune taking pleasure in the downfall of another. The scribes and Pharisees wanted to create a spectacle, and they did, but it backfired on them. Often today, the media would exploit such a thing, and others would enjoy it on social media. It's a warning for us. A seemingly simple incident, yet there is much below the surface. And there is much to reflect upon for ourselves as well. The woman caught in adultery, or was she? We'll never know, but there is much that we do know and much we can learn about the mercy of Jesus and learn about our own behavior and following Jesus, showing his mercy and being faithful to his message. Much to reflect upon for ourselves as well. God bless you. Hello, God's beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in 
and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.